This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. You're listening to 102.7 on the FM dial. It's a reduced cave tonight. There's two and a half of us, really. Um, Josh Nelson can't make it. I'm Thomas Cordwell. I'm sort of a shadow of my former self. I'm only half here. But the good news is Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas are here in full and fine form. Good evening to you both. Good evening to you, Thomas. Yes. <laughs> Hello, the remains of Thomas. <laughs> I'm, I'm so unwell right now. So let's hope I just keep all that disease and filth to myself and I'm, don't pass it across the desk. I'm full of verve. How yep. about you, sir? Sparkle, me. Yeah, full of sparkle. We're, we're bringing it. All right. Well, I'll just do the uh, occasional mispronunciation and let you two <laughs> drive the show. But look, it's, it's a good show. I think we've got, got some really interesting films we're going to be talking about tonight. The new Australian thriller drama Partisan. This is about a boy who starts to question the view of the world his father has has installed in him. It's set in an undefinable time and place. Speaking of undefinable time and places, we're also going to look at the latest live-action family-friendly blockbuster from Disney with Tomorrowland, also featuring a young protagonist who questions everything she has been told. And this is quite exciting. At the end of the show, we're going to revisit the classic English horror film, The Witchfinder General. This is a 1968 film starring Vincent Price as a murderous 17th century lawyer who, during the English Civil War, used ruthless measures to uncover witchcraft and sorcery. And let's give Partisan the Plato's Cave treatment. Alex. I've had a weird experience in the last few weeks. I tend to try not to get my hopes up when I go to the cinema to see a new film because I find that I am often doomed myself to disappointment. However, in the last two weeks, two films, two Australian films, uh, coincidentally, I've gone in with really, really high expectations and, and have have been pleased beyond what I could even imagine. Partisan is one of those films. And the other one, of course, is Fury Road that we waxed lyrical about a few weeks ago. Um, They're very different films. The fact that they are both Australian films and that they both rocked my world uh, really are the only thing in a way that they they have in common. These are very, very different movies. Partisan... um, really is quite easily on my list of, of, of possible contenders for film of the year. I, I really was so moved by this movie. Uh, the film follows an enigmatic man called Gregory, played by Vincent Cassell, uh, who finds desperate, desolate women and their babies and welcomes them into his commune, where the women and their children live in an isolated yet loving um, and initially at least seemingly healthy life under the patriarchal control of Gregory. But there's a catch, isn't there always? Mm-hmm. Grigori is training the children to be assassins for hire. The film follows the oldest child, Alexander, uh, Jeremy Chabriel, whose outstanding performance in this film, as he basically learns to challenge Grigori's control. Now, director Ariel Kleiman, who also co-wrote the film, is a real visual stylist. There's something just intoxicating about the world that he creates in Partisan. It's a really beautiful DIY, low-budget majesty um, to the style and to the look of this film that I found so so authentic and so simple um, but really really seductive in a, in a strange way. But the real power of this film, I think, is the almost magical energy between Vincent Cassell himself and the children that he, he acts alongside. There's something so pure and captivating and genuine in the rela- relations between Cassell and these children, both spoken and unspoken. 
Kleiman does something really quite remarkable in how he structures uh, this film around tensions between the micro and the macro. And Grigori is a character that really uniquely understands the childlike ability to focus on really small details. And I think in large part the film's drama hinges on, on Grigori's corruption of that knowledge and that understanding. I, I have a lot of things to say about this film. I haven't even touched on karaoke, but Cerise, I'm no. going to let you speak. Oh, you could touch on karaoke I, first. I can always touch on karaoke. We can come back to karaoke. Sure. Look, I, I rather enjoyed this film too. I was very impressed. It is a debut, isn't it? It is. Yeah. He, I think, believe he'd made, uh, Clement he, had made two short films previously. Yeah, and the previous one, I'll come back to it, which I have seen. It's a stunning film set aboard a submarine, um, 2009, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, his short film showed that this was a talent in, in the making uh, on his yeah. way up to great things. Yeah, OK. Yeah, well, we talk about this being an Australian film, but it is very notably not an Australian landscape. It's all set in... It's uh, very notably um, a post-communist uh, wasteland set in rocky, uh, inhospitable terrain, uh, prefab housing all over the place. And, and the, the, where, where these folks all live um, in a semi-sort of cult-like re- environment really is a fairly makeshift bunker-like arrangement somehow. It's very difficult to actually place it right in amongst uh, what we see of the train, other than that we know that it can be accessed through holes in the ground, and yet it seems to be above ground level. It's a bit disorienting, but that's fine. Uh, But it's Georgia, I I do believe, uh, the particular uh, uh, post-ex-Soviet country used for the shoot here. But it doesn't matter. As you say, this is set in a nowhere place, nowhere in particular place. Um, Though that said, for me, I can instantly pick up on that... that, um, ex-Soviet Republic vibe and wonder why everyone's speaking English with slightly different accents and be slightly irked because it, it takes me a little bit out of the sense of authenticity that this film otherwise actually I think generates really well. It does have a sense of location even if it is disorienting. Cassell's so full of charisma and uh, and that easily slips into menace mode, uh, just usually with a twitch or two. He twitches quite a bit in this film. He's a twitchy man. He is very twitchy. Uh, and toothy too. He's always been quite toothsome. <laughs> and I, I, I think, though, for me, what, what uh, the element of this one that I was most impressed by is actually its score. Now, I'm not sure quite who's responsible for it, but it's, it, uh, it's not surprising to me in a way that the approach to the sound that this film has taken, noting the warp films imprimatur on this as well. And when I, I think of Snowtown and uh, the Kurzel brothers' collaboration on that film. And, and the, the way sound was utilised there, I get a bit of a sense of that vibe here too. It's just constant thrumming menace throughout the film. Aside, in fact, actually I can't say aside from the karaoke sequences because those sequences are utilising music. Some of that's rather of a dark, wavish uh, nature too, yet poppy and catchy. And I'm, I suspect, Alex, you might know the songs quite well. Let me tell you about the karaoke. Oh, they, they were some of my favourite scenes in the film and it sounds unusual, I guess, if you haven't seen the movie, to be talking about karaoke in a film that is really quite dark. Yeah. But the, these scenes are incorporated in, in such a such a powerful way uh, as a kind of community building exercise that, that uh, Grigori involves the children in, in this performance and the children are rewarded for good behaviour um, with karaoke, they be- they can become pop stars. Now, there's three three songs I believe in the film that are, that are for karaoke. And uh, if you go to Madman uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, they've actually posted these videos separately. And I'm quite besotted. You know that um, this is confession time, but that that headspace you get into where you find yourself really rocking out 
alone in your pajamas in your kitchen in a way that is totally earnest <laughs> and 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 you have that it's almost like being struck by lightning when you realize that there is no irony to what you're doing that's how i am to these karaoke songs they're just fantastic i originally when i saw the film thought that they were genuine 80s euro pop songs i didn't realize that they were written later for oh, the... i didn't realize that either well one of them uh, and i've got it written down here albert mondo's i eat at home <laughs> and i like to sing that again albert mondo i eat it uh, i eat it sorry i eat it at home is in fact one mr jarvis cocker uh-huh no there hang on albert Mon- mondo oh, is, is the other one yeah no albert mondo is sebastian tellier so is the other one yeah so jarvis Cockeries play Spanner N. We, there you he go. performs the Spanner N on the song Friday Night. I got it wrong. I apologise. But, but no, you, but what, what you're saying <laughs> I knew he was on it. True. I knew yeah. he was on it. Yeah, all these contemporary pop stars recorded these kind of 80-esque tracks and they've made these really cheesy karaoke videos to go with them. If you go to, um, it's a great faux label they've created for them as well, Partizan Records. So if you go to Partizan, so party, S-A-N, records.com, you you can get the clips to all these the, these faux 80 power pop ballads. You have no reason to not go and see this film, but if for any bizarre reason you choose not to, you can actually, yeah, indulge in, in a little bit of partisan-spirited karaoke yourself with a little bit of face paint, as I believe the children mm. do in this film. Oh, yes. It's quite beautiful, quite beautiful. A curious thing, the, the promo we listened to just before really pushed the angle of the, the, the key child within the film being a, a trained assassin, but really that's actually very understated in the film. It's just this thing that sort of crops up time to time and makes you feel uneasy, but the film really ignores that much of its runtime. Even I think the first time it comes up and you're, oh... And then it's just left alone again for quite a while and there are more scenes and uh, the kids play funny games, funny reward systems. Then uh, a new mother and child come in and upset the apple cart a little bit because this child's actually a bit um, a bit naughty and, and unapologetically resistant to Grigori's charms and, uh, and finds himself in the chicken coop for a, a period there where he just holds up. And uh, that's interesting when that dynamic, actually, Grigori's hold is threatened for a period there. And I think that's actually, in a way, the most dramatic uh, part of the film. I, I can't really spell out why or, or what it, the implications of it, but it's, uh, that's, it's quite powerful. Grigori's really threatened by it, and I think that ties into what I was saying about there's something about this film that it, it really is focused on the micro everything is so natural to these children in this world and the film presents it in exactly that way so the fact that they are trained assassins doesn't seem unusual to them because they've grown up to be trained assassins it's just another thing that they do it's just another part of their day and their ordinary life and i love how natural and organic that feels in the film it doesn't it doesn't present that as a big or a big reveal. It's just another ordinary part of the day. Yeah. And the, the threat that, that Grigori feels very clearly at the arrival of, the, of, this, new, of this new child uh, is, I, I think, I mean, it's obviously a really crucial plot point, um, but thematically I think it's where the, these issues of, of male power really start coming into play in this film. And I think um, very much the film's about uh, fatherhood 
and those kind of relations, but I get the feeling that there's something even more profound in terms of just male power and dominance going on in this movie. Well, he is the male adult figure in the film, not completely exclusively, but the only one who's in that particular environment. And all the women there, I get the sense, we don't quite get that backstory, but do get the sense that they probably came to be there much the same way as the woman we meet at the very outset of the film, which is to say he was uh, traipsing around the corridors of hospitals looking for lonely women who had just given birth. Just, um actually kind of creepy kind of creepy that's that's one of the things i was aware of watching this movie was that he was so predatory but at the same time completely not there was such a warmth if it wasn't for the whole um trained assassin thing it it would almost be hard to 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 kind of find fault with with his warmth and his his genuine connection to these children Mm. there was a real love there P.S. He's training them to be assassins. Yeah, and presumably <laughs> the women form some sort of harem. We're not quite sure what the, the real dynamic there is, but you get a sense there are relations of a sexual nature Absolutely. between him and and the clan. Yeah. Oh, it's an intriguing film. It's uh, it's such an atypical Australian film, not just because it happens to be shot elsewhere, but it just has a, an energy and and uh, and. Uh, there's an anxiousness it, it creates, and anxiety. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's it's got a just a new Australian cinema direction, something vibe going about it. It's it seemed very conscious that the the external shots were all of uh, post-Soviet Georgia, but the internal shots were all filmed in Australia. Yeah, and that, there's that strange tension when I, I didn't know that when I saw the film, but I was very much aware that there was a disconnect between what happens inside and what happens outside, and the film. The film's plot is very much working on that disconnect, uh, and I thought it was interesting that that the, the film's production history was very conscious of trying to make that disconnect by having them filmed literally on different sides of the planet. It's a strange, uh, yet highly functional directorial decision. Ariel Kleinman's new film, Partisan, and we mentioned that before. This is his feature debut. He has done several short films before this, but he's the two really prominent ones are Young Love, which is the 2009 film, and then the one I was thinking of is Deeper Than Yesterday, the 2010 film that was set on board a submarine. And films definitely worth tracking down. You also mentioned Snowtown. Um, both both these films were produced by Warp, and the, the same two producers worked on both films, Anna McLeishan, Sarah Shaw, who, along Ariel, I suppose, is just part of this extraordinary generation of Australian filmmakers doing really uh, bold and innovative things in Australian cinema, which is always exciting. Hurrah! Hurrah! You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. That's an awkward segue to Tomorrowland, um, which I don't think anybody will be describing as a classic in, in, in the future. I'm quite fond of it, but Cerise, I'm quite keen to hear what you think. Why do you think I'm going to just... Tear it. No, 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 I wasn't implying this anything is no at all. This no Jupiter ascending. Yeah. No, this is, um, <laughs> well, actually, I think it's an interesting comparison, but um, oh. we'll get into oh, that. Oh, oh. We'll get into that. Take it away. I'll shut up. All right. Look, this is a very idealistic film. It certainly has to be said. From director Brad Bird, uh, renowned earlier on for his work in animation from the hand-drawn The Iron Giant, much loved, to much loved films of Pixar, such as Ratatouille and The Incredibles. Um, 
I believe he did the Simpsons Do the Batman clip years ago, en route to eventually getting into live action uh, and the Mission Impossible reboot a few years back, Ghost Protocol, which I thought was fantastic. Completely I really like against that too. all expectations. I love that film as well. There go, we go Cave. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tomorrowland, I mean, hopes reasonably could be high for something a bit special, especially as this film, while it is live action, has so much animation in it, really. If we think of uh, most modern day blockbusters, and this is a Disney blockbuster, there is in fact a hell of a lot of animation in this film. Concerned with uh, events based uh, more or less in the here and now uh, as we are apparently hurtling towards an apocalypse. It's amazing how often apocalyptic scenarios have been coming up lately. Sort of reinforces the message of this film. Why aren't we listening people? Um, So George Clooney at the outset of this film is Frank Walker addresses the camera tries to tell a story but is repeatedly uh, interrupted by a voice from just off camera, a younger female voice. Uh, And occasionally and ominously the camera zooms, sweeps towards a clock ticking down. We don't know quite what that means yet, but is the film even quite uh, meta? Uh, It tells us in quite a meta way that it can't, can't be good news. Clocks ticking down is never signs of good things afoot there's a bit of toing and froing between that sort of sequence which sort of wears thin pretty quickly to a bit of backstory which includes uh, a young boy at the new york world's fair in 1964 uh, a boy who has brought his own uh, handmade self-designed jetpack uh, to be uh, assessed by some snooty dismissive man played by hugh laurie and notably, this jetpack seems to be a couple of vacuum cleaners uh, attached together and bits of other stuff. And the kid is all full of enthusiasm, and maybe he's a genius, maybe this thing works. We see a, a quite humorous little scene where it doesn't entirely work. Uh, but he is more or less just brushed off by uh, Hugh Laurie. Uh, but his daughter, or some young girl floating about, seems more interested in him, and magically, before terribly long, this kid is in... Uh, a land of the future full of sparkly, shiny things, and in fact much of it actually based in a real-world environment of the present day, the City of Arts and Sciences in Valencia in Spain, as it so happens. There's another young idealistic person we are soon introduced to in this film, a young woman named Casey, who repeatedly vandalises NASA, NASA. NASA infrastructure. NASA. NASA. Yeah. Ooh la la. Ooh la la, yeah. Vincent Cassel. We didn't see... Why didn't we go there before? Vincent Price. Yeah, Vincent. Um, so, uh, Casey is uh, a resourceful young woman whose father is barely staying in work, even though he's a NASA engineer. Uh, Casey ends up spending a night in the lockup and receives some weird little device which magically transports her to this same place that this young boy went to earlier. Only weirdly, and this relationship is never made clear in the film, each time she touches it while she is transported there, she also moves in the real world, in the real, in, na- in the now, uh, humorously at first, leading to a pratfall down some stairs and so on. Well, it's sort of she's moving in time but not in space. But dimensional something and yeah, it's, a, it's actually a bit muddled. I don't think which it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It yeah, because no. it's the, the, as you find out that this this magical place isn't literally in the future. It's and it's it's elsewhere across I mean, space part... and time and yeah. quantum uncertainties and you know it's a Disney film. Let's not go too far into it's it. It's quite a complex, convoluted film well, it, in it many is. regards. It is, and yet aspects of it are extremely simplistic. So I mean, it, yeah, look, it, it wears its heart on its sleeve. It has a very strong green agenda, and I, I think to reinforce how much it is aimed 
at children. Uh, there are the scenes in which Casey is in school receiving uh, lessons on the, the great dystopian fiction writers of the past, Huxley, Orwell and Bradbury. Mm. She's desperately trying to get a word in edgeways just to be able to ask one of these teachers, what can be done? Can anything be done? Um, now she's sort of shut down. Uh, that's. Uh, I don't really want to cut a long story short or even go into the story much more other than to say that I actually did enjoy this film. Ah, uh, great. Uh, the first 20 hmm. minutes I was getting a little impatient, but it's, it becomes increasingly inventive and and quite witty. There's a, a great scene in uh, a sci-fi kitschy shop in which lots of uh, recognisable... Uh, merchandising items relating to sci-fi blockbusters of years gone by, sometimes even used as projectiles. It's you know, There's a few good gags there for anyone who's a bit of a nerd. Uh, another great scene appears in the Eif- occurs in the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> uh, a great congregation in cardboard cutout style or just taxidermied style perhaps of certain famous scientists and a really fantastic gag for old-school film nerds about Edison uh, who, who basically was just a monopolistic bastard who did not wish to share uh, his inventions with well more or less anybody uh some things never change and why why in this day and age can no one say jules like they should we get this jules verne um sort of pronunciation which this sort of stuff just irks me um but on the whole i was willing to let a lot of stuff in this film slide because it really gets a great great energy going it gets some great momentum and and even you know some of the the folks in it are clearly really hamming it up and having a ball so there's a baddie who is hugo weaving from the matrix made infinitely cheesier has that same uh, inexorable uh thing about him but just smiles like uh, uh bruce campbell if he had had i don't know the biggest wheel of camembert to cheese himself <laughs> on, <laughs> on the planet so yeah i, I yeah. think there's a real energy behind this film and I, I did like its almost reckless approach to narrative which is it's a really hard film to describe because a lot of the key information about what's going on in this film doesn't happen until the last 10 minutes or so it's almost like the entire film is the first act and i think that's why it's frustrated some people because it does feel like this is the intro to the film that we, we really want to see but i I increasingly find any film that abandons the three-act structure enormously liberating. And whenever I hear someone lecture about the importance of the three-act structure, I just roll my eyes and think, you're an amateur who'll be stuck in TV your entire life. I, I, I think it's so dull that they still ram this down the throats of students in film classes. So yeah. I actually quite like seeing a film on this scale really break free of those of those shackles. And it's played... It, it is a family film. I think you have to go in accepting it's played tonally as a family film. I mean, the hero is this teenage girl and um she's like a teenage girl i mean apart from the fact that she's a computer genius and she sabotages sabotages nasa they actually do play it fairly much like a kind of likeable but slightly bratty girl um and i you know i think the other actors sort of play along with that and i did mention jupiter ascending because i think both films have had you know people have said there's some interesting ideas in there conceptually but it's it's a bit of a mess where i think they get the tone right in Tomorrowland. It's not nearly as kind of obnoxiously pompous, and it gets away. And I think it's also just smarter filmmaking. I mean, Brad Bird is such a master at handling large-scale scenes, whether it's in animation or some of the elaborate CGI moments in this. There is a beautiful long take. I mean, it's all CGI long take, but there's a beautiful scene where, where Casey visits Tomorrowland, and we share her absolute wonder at this utopian you know, vision of the scientific possibilities. And I, I really got swept away in that moment, and yeah. I thought the action was fun. 
it gets weirdly comically violent at points. Um, I mean, one a lot, a lot of the villains in this are robots, but they still get dispatched in fairly gruesome ways. And a lot of the human kind of characters do get killed quite casually as well. Yeah, it's true. You don't want to be a cop or security guard in this film because you just get vaporised <laughs> and no one cares. Um, and look, I'm also a massive sentimentalist at heart, so I actually really quite enjoyed the, the general gist and idea of the, of the film, which is, you know, we've lost the sense of hope and, and you know, and, and creativity and we are, we are engineering our own destruction. I, I agree. I think there's such a joy to this film and, and, and that was what was missing from... Um Jupiter Ascending for me is it felt like a joyless film but there was so much glee in this movie Tomorrowland was such a happy it was just so happy being a film that I think it, it would be hard to criticize it for that spirit alone mm. it's so uncynical and so genuine it's um Tomorrowland is already quite renowned as being a flop um in both critical and I believe box office terms but I think the word flop, it's thrown around a little too lightly. I think that some of the more interesting films that come to my mind when I think of the word flop are actually really fantastic films that were trying to do something different. Maybe they didn't pull it off, but films like uh, Elaine May's Ishtar, it's a flop. Even Joseph Losey's Boom, um, there's something else. Hudson Hawk, one of my favourite <laughs> hangover films, that film was a terrible flop. And I think it's a really, well, maybe not a great film, but it was trying to do something interesting and it had that same joy and glee that I think tomorrow land has so maybe I, I, I share that with you a sort of love of films that maybe they don't work on mass for a lot of, i mean some of these films include things like say blade runner which you know lays down the line everybody worships as a masterpiece including myself but there, there, there's that handful of films that just they don't quite work because you can't categorize them or fit them in anywhere and i've got quite a fondness for those films too i, I think brad bird is to be commended i think he really tried to do something different and fresh and original here and maybe it didn't completely hit the target but i i mean he's this this film isn't a flop because it's just churning out the same old same old and i think that alone warrants a degree of respect um and it's fun um i really loved the 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 retro futurist aesthetics in this film not just the the really obvious buckminster fuller inspired stuff but the the steampunky stuff going on in the eiffel tower i thought was really quite beautiful um it the, the stuff at the start with the 1964 World Fair in New York really took me back to the wonderful world of Disney TV series. I don't know if you guys remember that from yeah, the 60s yeah, or 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The It's a Small World After All uh, mm. stuff. Yeah. I grew up on that stuff. It was so hard not to feel a, a kind of nostalgic warmth, and yeah. I'm pretty cynical about nostalgic yeah. warmth. And it's really interesting you mention that, because when that, that happens early on, uh, it actually at first uh, brushed me up the wrong way, because I'm thinking, oh, they've just uh, shoehorned a whole bunch of Disney nostalgia into uh, an actual life event, a real event. The New York World Fair happened in 1964. There was a previous one there too in 38, I think it was. But, as I looked it up, um, no, it's a small world. Uh, there was a Disney, a very Disney uh, um, presence at that new at that World Fair. And in fact, uh, I had no idea of this. I'd never been to Disneyland. Was my childhood the sadder for it? I don't know. <laughs> but Tomorrowland was something that was a part of Disneyland from the very get-go. I had no idea when I saw this film, but it was part of the, the inaugural Disneyland in 1955 when it was opened in Anaheim, California. And there's another four of them, I believe, in the Disney empire out there. So um, Yeah, I've yeah. been to Discoveryland, which is the one in Paris. 
Is that got a Tomorrowland? Uh, you will, it? it's the, sorry, it's, it's Disneyland, but they call their Tomorrowland Discoveryland. And in the Paris one, they incorporate a lot of the ideals from Jules Verne. So they sort of acknowledge... They, I'm not going to try and pronounce it the way you did, Cerise. They, they, <laughs> they, they acknowledge the idea that there are these very old ideas of what the future is, this kind of retro futurism. But the original Tomorrowland was based on genuine futurist utopian ideals about what the space race was going to deliver for the human race. And there is something wonderfully naive and joyful uh, about that, which is articulated in this film. I'll tell you what I think the biggest problem for this film in terms of box office is. It's a film that's CGI-reliant. It's, it's very much built on CGI, so there's but no... good in, CGI. Really good CGI, because it, it is possible, but there's none of this in-camera action sequences, and it's a film that mocks apocalyptic narratives and say we should be shunning these narratives and being more hopeful... The film came out two weeks after Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, what hope does it have with that message? I, I have to admit, I did find um, the last 40 minutes of this film very hard going. It, it, it was a bit of a hot mess. And there was something that really did rub me up the wrong way about, you know, the planet isn't doomed because we're terrible people who have done terrible things to the planet that we live on. It's doomed because of bad vibes. There was something a bit disingenuous and kind of conservative about that, that that I found a little bit difficult to stick with right through to the end. I thought Clooney was fantastic. It was really nice seeing him not trying to sell me coffee. <laughs> that was an experience. I thought the little boy that played him as a young man uh, was marvellous. He looked like a young George Clooney. We haven't touched on the weirdness, by the way. Are we going to touch on the weirdness? Uh, which weirdness? There's, There's we, a, we've got a couple of minutes to be weird, yeah. There's a young... The, the young girl that you oh, mentioned earlier, yes. Cerise, the young robot. Mm, yes. There is a, a, a romance that develops between her yeah, and the young George Clooney. Are we going to touch a, on this? A Jonathan Glazer birth-esque sort of dynamic. Oh, was that Barber film with uh, the mother and child? The last shock, maybe, as Shock. Creepy. Daria Nicolati. Without spoiling anything, because of the mechanics of this film and its science fiction scenario, there is a relationship that began with infants and now one part of that couple is much, much older than the other one. Yes. And they sort of still use some of that possible romantic attraction in the film when there's a massive age gap. I, look, it, it is very weird. I think the film probably handled it as best as it could. Then again, it decided to include it when it could yeah. not have done it all. And it's not that big an age gap compared to conventional Hollywood cinema. Discuss. <laughs> oh, careful, careful. Well, come on. It is weird. I, th- I think that's the thing. It's a weird film, full stop. But I think um, you've got three people in one room who actually have a, a, a fondness for these kind of films, especially when they're this bold and inventive. And I think the heart behind it is so pure and so true. Well, I think it's both naive but also very knowing. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but it's not calculatedly naive either. It's, uh, and there is optimism there, but there's also pessimism because ultimately, really, we're, we're all copying a lot of the, the blame for the scenario in this film because we're, we're all of us, especially, I think, in the first world being uh, we're under fire here for our apathy. And perhaps that's fair enough. Three triple R. The Witchfinder General, which has uh, been recently re-released in Australia on home entertainment. Alex, tell us all about it. Well, there's so much to say about this film. It's difficult to know where to begin. This is without doubt one of the most famous and well-regarded British horror films ever made. Now, if you check out the trailer on YouTube, it could mistakenly give you the impression that this is sort of like a kind of Hammer Horror-esque type movie. But do not fall for its charms. This is not the case. This is a really violent, quite gory film in places. There's none of that kind of sexy campness from which... Hammer Horror is renowned going on here. Quite the opposite. 
Now, the film is a fictional retelling of the real-life Matthew Hopkins, a 17th-century lawyer-turned-witch-hunter whose self-appointed reign as witch-finder-general resulted in real life, with more people being hung for witchcraft in the three years he was active than in the previous 100 years combined. The film Witchfinder-General is is a heavily fictionalised account of Hopkins' life, but it's still a rather powerful and disturbing one. This is one of those movies that turns up a lot on a list of the greatest horror films ever made, and it's really up there with The Wicker Man, I think, on British entries into that canon. It's a beautifully made film, and the cinematography alone has um, often been compared to the paintings of uh, J.M.W. Turner. It's really of that calibre. All of that aside, uh, in large part, the reputation of this film in a way stems as much from its, produ- its production history. The director, Michael Reeves, was only 25 years old when he made this film, and even then he was considered a pr- pretty much a genius. Think of a kind of British horror Xavier Dolan, and you start getting the idea of why Michael Reeves was such a big deal. Now, he died just after Witchfinder General was released of an accidental overdose, and his passing um, is still talked about uh, as, a, as a really major loss for the British film industry. This is an absolute genre classic. You, you have to see this if you've got any kind of interest in horror, even just in passing. It's, it's really worth your time. It's a great film. It is a terrific film. And it, uh, oh, just from the very get-go, it's harrowing. It's, uh, there's no campiness in... Well, not, not much campiness in this. Uh, with a little bit of time having passed, there are certain uh, elements in it. You'd think if, if Reeves had his time all over again, uh, he, he mightn't have included quite such lurid... Lee uh, read blood, which was, I guess, of, of the time, uh, but it, it doesn't look like real blood. It's so technicolor. But uh, everyone's performances, including Vincent Price, who tones down the hamming completely and is just chilling throughout this film. Uh, yeah, it's, it's deadly serious. And that opening sequence where a witch is being uh, brought up to uh, a, a makeshift gallows are being erected on a hill and it's just cross cuts back and forth is is just extremely upsetting and um you know for all of the times where you might have seen witch hunts played for sort of laughs and i especially think in in, is it monty python and the holy grail where there's the whole witch witch and the 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 test that that women in particular were subjected to in order to determine whether they were a witch and of course should they actually pass the test they die so it's kind of a lose-lose situation and die horribly it's die horribly one way or die horribly another so uh but this this film plays that not in any way for laughs it was not funny when this sort of stuff was actually happening in the time and the film definitely tries to position you in 17th century England where you get a little bit of a sense of the the chaos that uh, England found itself in with the civil war uh, and um, good Christians fighting other good Christians I think is part of the the backdrop to it all but lunatics just uh, acting lawlessly like this Matthew Hopkins uh, were roaming the countryside and uh, dishing out their own very peculiar brand of uh, grotesque injustice, presumably just for kicks because, oh, and for money, but really this guy doesn't seem like he needs money. You get no sense that he even has a home. He just wants to roam the countryside and, um, and torture Women, uh, especially men too, but women in particular, and the younger and nubile seemingly the better. Hopkins was clearly a psychopath, and as you said, um, Vincent Price really does a remarkable job uh, playing this this really quite awful character. Price seems like a strange choice. The, the, the background, there's a great book on this film by a guy called Ian Cooper that fills in a lot of this production history background that's just a fascinating read. This film was bankrolled, I believe, by uh, Roger Corman, an American international 
pictures. Now, Reeves originally wanted Donald Pleasance for the role of Matthew Hopkins, which would have been an amazing film. I'm a big big um, yeah, Donald Pleasant's fan. That would have been a really different film, but a really interesting one. Um, but it was AIP money, and Corman said, you're going to have the big AIP horror star, which is Vincent Price. Apparently Price and Reeves loathed each other. They did not get along well. There's a very famous story. I don't know how true it is. Um, but uh, Reeves was constantly berating Price to tone it down, to just sort of stop being so camp, stop being so hammy. And Price at one point just cracked it and said... You know, don't you know who I am? I've made 82 films. Who, who are you? Um, you know, who are you to, to question this? And the guy said, well, I, I've made three good ones, yeah. was Reeves' reply. Pow. And apparently at that moment, the way that Price tells the story anyway, that was the moment that, that, that Price clicked. And he did tone it down, and he had infinite respect from Reeves after that point. Price, before he died, is still named this as probably the best film that he ever made. Yeah, it's, it is it is a stunning film. And you mentioned how gorgeous its cinematography is just before. It really is beautiful. Uh, these pastoral scenes... Uh autumnal splendor of the english countryside uh really to as as a relief to to set the horrors of this film against it's it's uh striking and uh, i'm not sure who do you know the cinematographer off the top of your head i don't i don't i I had a look up the name but uh, i noticed a lot of other actually a lot of hammer credits there and other sort of english genre film of the period but it still wasn't a household name by any stretch but this this film is exquisite this particular dvd has the picture quality and it is beautiful. It's such a, a wonderful thing that, uh, that there was at least a, a, a negative or a positive of this film somewhere of that quality to, to run off beautiful DVDs like this because a lot of films from that period, especially genre films, even as recently as 68, this film, uh, a lot of them just fell into neglect because who cares? Now, just remind me, I'm a bit sad I didn't get to revisit this film um, for a variety of reasons and I really wanted to, but I have seen it before. My memory of it is it being a really strong historical film like it's that first a horror film second like it's not the kind of film i i normally associate with the banner horror even though there's plenty of horror elements in there remind me how much on-screen violence is there because i remember there's a handful of fairly confronting scenes but the, the horror of the film is more the idea of what's going to happen or what could potentially happen like you're sort of on the edge of your seat rather than being exposed to lots of visual nastiness but maybe i've remembered wrong I think it's a quite violent film. Um, it, it is quite violent, but yeah, it's not a film full of occasional startles or, or uh, those sort of ploys to just uh, to create that sort of fear. It's more a film that inspires dread than that's than a really good point. Jumps. That, and, it's yeah. not that those jump scares at yeah. all. Be, and and I guess the historical aspect of it means that we know that there's more of these assaults on women coming. Uh, primarily women, but also men. But the history tells us that we know that that Hopkins doesn't stop. There's this sense of dread that we just know that that this is just going to keep on happening, and I think that that creates the tension within the film. And one of the strange aspects of this film, like Wicker Man, is so much of it happens during day t- daylight, yes. which is really unusual yeah, yeah. for horror. Yeah. Um, Wicker Man and, and and this film in particular, I think for me, are two of the, the most immediate films that I think of when I think of daytime horror films. But, but that would be a great double, wouldn't it? Those it would two be films. A, a perfect double. I don't yeah. know if I'd last. And, <laughs> and with them both, too, the, the horror is uh, banalised to some extent. It's, it's ordinary, everyday people. And, and what I think this film's... The, it's, it's sort of uh, the real horror, the, the ultimate horror in it is how it suggests that anybody could become Matthew Hopkins. That's It's... it's punchline almost you could say that uh yeah sure hopkins is evil from the get-go we get that we don't know how he became who he is but um 
we know that he's human. He is humanized. He's not made out to be something sort of supernatural or just. No, he's just a, a psychopath. And the film suggests that even other people, good people, ostensibly good people, the sorts of people who might be uh, rewarded and acknowledged for their efforts by king and country, might themselves have the capacity to do unspeakably horrible things. Uh, so I think therein lies this film's strength too and its longevity in that it actually has something a little more profound to say. When I was watching it, I was thinking a lot of, the, of that mob mentality that if, if, if Hopkins didn't have all of these people with good intentions supporting him he wouldn't have been able to maintain his reign of terror and this mob sort of spirit i guess really reminded me of uh it sounds like an abstract film to mention but i believe it was made in the same year or maybe a year later and night of the living dead the mm-hmm. george romero zombie film where again we have those really interesting shots of of the mob the the zombie killing mob um who of course lead to the memorable conclusion of that particular film I, that's one thing I do remember the sense of this film is if he wasn't there doing these things there would be somebody else like he is a product of a sick society and that um, there's a lot of people who could have stopped him but and maybe tut-tutted publicly but privately were quite happy for him to go and do what he was doing but then there's the great existential question this, this film raises which is in order to get rid of him what sort of person do you have to become yourself as well? And I think yeah, therein lies its real... Maybe Donald Pleasance from Wake and Fright. We can have a little <laughs> celebrity death match. Well, that would, that would be a nice double with this as well. Yeah, yeah. let's throw in Christopher Lee from um, Wicker Man. We'll have a three-way Thunderdome type... <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm doing this. this what are we good. talking about? <laughs> well, Vincent Price what are you is these fantasy about? fight battles. <laughs> Vincent Price is um is worth mentioning. A, again, that this is such an unusual film for him, even though it's still in horror. It's so different for the horror films that he's really renowned for. But I think we need a little bit of a shout out to Coral Brown, Footscray girl, who was Mrs. Vincent Price and a remarkable actor in her own right. So yeah. he, he, Vincent Price has honor, honorary Melbourne cred. Yeah, and he's an honorary Australian for sure. Uh, is that where we want to end this thing? That's a great way to end this thing. Let's take that. He's, yeah, he's one of us, really. Let's bring this back to Melbourne. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas, my name's Thomas Caldwell. Partisan is on limited release through Madman Entertainment. Tomorrowland is on wide release through Walt Disney Studios and The Witchfinder General, which we've just been speaking about. You can get that on DVD, Blu-ray and Google Play through Shop entertainment next week on plato's cave we're going to do a bit of a western special lots of interesting uh, sort of variations on the western have popped up recently so we're going to talk about salvation slow west and marshlands this has been a podcast from 3rr 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au